welcome to Far and Beyond Oregon True Crime, where we explore strange, bizarre, and crazy true crime stories from Oregon and the Pacific Northwest. I'm your host, Stacy, And I'm your co-host, Valerie. Let's get started. <laughs> How was your week, Stacy? Um, it's fairly stressful. Right now, I'm getting ready to take my Girl Scout troop on our first camping trip. And it's more like glamping, because we'll be in, like, Girl Scout cabins, but basically, there are four walls with a window cut into it, no glass, and a canvas put over that, and then a little door that has a hinge on it. <laughs> so they're very rustic cabins, but it's their first camping experience, so it's going to be pretty interesting. That sounds fun. Yes. When they, found, <laughs> when they found out that they couldn't bring a microwave and plug it in, because there's no electricity, they freaked out. <laughs> so where are we going to plug in our phones? They said, well, there's no reception there either. <laughs> None of them want to go now. <laughs> They're all teenagers, though, so I forgive them. They'll have fun, though. Do you think they'll survive? <laughs> I hope so. When they come home and tell their parents, I'm sorry, your daughter died without her phone. <sighs> they said it would happen. We didn't believe them, but it did. Yeah, so hopefully we're going to have a lot of fun, though. What's our story this week? Ooh. So this week... We learn about um, an event at the beginning of the 20th century where one religious movement shook up Oregon and Washington with a murder that would spark a holy roller coaster of events. What does holy roller coaster mean? <laughs> You'll find out. <laughs> it is a very up and down. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it was crazy researching this. Like, I knew it was crazy, but I didn't know it was this crazy. So, have you ever heard. Of the Holy Rollers. No. So, there. This is in Oregon? This is in Oregon, yes. The Holy yeah. Rollers. Their actual religious name is the Brides of Christ. But in Oregon, people dub them the Holy Rollers due to the fact that the members would roll on the floor during the services. Like, the spirit had overcome them, so they'd start rolling about on the floor. Like a hamster or something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds like it was insane. Yeah, sounds intense. <laughs> yeah, a little intense. So, the Brides of Christ was started by Franz Edward Joshua Crayfield in 1903. So, this takes place way back at the beginning of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. He was a German immigrant living in Corvallis at the time. And, like many cult leaders, he was very uh, persuasive and charismatic, and he convinced 20 Salvation, Arm- 20 Salvation Army soldiers to join his group, according to OregonEncyclopedia.com. So, he got 20 soldiers to join him. So, I'm guessing that's men mm-hmm. at the time, because women weren't allowed. Probably. Is it their families included, or yes. just the men? And he taught that one of the women in his group would bear Christ in the second coming, hence the Brides of Christ. Mm -hmm. But the only hitch to this was that each woman had to be purified, quotation marks here, by Crefield, by him laying his hands on them. Sounds like a cult leader. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I'm like, you said this all their things. You're going to do amazing things, but first you have to sleep with. Uh-huh. All things through me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah. According to uh, m- many of the sources, there was a lot of free love and nudity. Shocking, 
right? Yeah, so shocking. <laughs> like, when they were rolling on the floor, they were usually tearing each other's clothes off, so I'm, I'm wondering what they meant by rolling on the floor. Yikes. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> so, this was, like, the 1900s, so you can guess that many people did not like their practices. Mm-hmm. It didn't go over well. It and... wouldn't go over well today. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> we're a little more accepting today, I like to think, of uh-huh. different, you know... We're just kind of like, okay, free love, yeah, do your thing, whatever. Yeah. But um, most of their practices back then were thought to be bouts with insanity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At one point, the rollers were pushed outside the city limits, and they actually ended up returning and took up residence in actually a prominent man's house of the community. And that man, his name was O.V. Hurt. So his first initial was O, middle initial V. Never found out what his first name and middle name were. He's always referred to as O.V. Hurt. What city was this? Corvallis. Okay. So not too far from us. Yeah. I like Corvallis. I've been there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, they're the home of the beavers. Yep. They got some, uh, I found some geocaches around the OSU ones, actually. There was one that was so tiny. It was like, you know, like a little, it was like a little bolt. Hmm. Like, that you'd screw onto a fence, and it was magnetic. It was clipped to the fence. It was the weirdest geocache I've ever seen, and it was so tiny. I saw it at first, and I was like, huh, the other fences don't have that, but there's no way it's that small. But it is that small. It's That's crazy. crazy. <laughs> I've never geocached. Yeah. I don't do it too much, but I have an app on my phone, so whenever I find a place that has a lot, like Corvallis, I like to Go around and explore. explore. Yeah. It's a reason to get outside. <laughs> so... Here's some examples of their craziness that was reported in the papers. They burned all of the things in the Hertz house. They took all their furniture to the lawn and had a bonfire. They burned and killed the family pets. For no reason? Dogs, cats, chickens. Yeah. They ripped out all the plants in the family's front yard. And then they barred the entrance to the property except to those people that were members. Is this guy letting them stay there for free? Like, is he part of the cult? He's part of the cult at this point in time. So, actually, and and he would actually deny most of these claims in an interview with the Weekly Gazette Times of Corvallis um, on November 18th, 1903. And he, he told them, you know, the items we destroyed weren't actually valuable and the dog basically said deserved to die. Because I was like, <laughs> basically he said the dog was really no good, so it deserved to die. Just bring I'm like, it to a shelter or something. Yeah, like if you don't want the dog, I'll take it. <laughs> Jeez. So there were also stories that the followers were considering burning a child as a sacrifice. Like this, this stuff was crazy. Um. They went into people's houses and threw themselves on the floor and demanded that, and said that God demanded these people feed them. It sounds like they're having a tantrum. Yeah. Like, that's what a six-year-old would do. <laughs> right? So, um, they did this at one woman's house and she actually, like, went back to the kitchen and pretended to get food and actually left the house, went to the market, got some strong men at the market and had them throw the guy out of her house. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> yeah. So, the papers had some kind of funny stuff going on with all this. Like, they have these little excerpts from the townspeople. Um, So, I clipped a couple of them. 
the first one says, Say, what's the matter with Grove Telephone Company? Have they been hoodooed or have they joined the Holy Rollers? <laughs> Ovi Hurt is reported to have shipped the Holy Rollers from his house near Corvallis, but this will not stop them. They will break out somewhere else. <laughs> like they're a disease. <laughs> The Holy Roller's smoke at Corvallis has proven a good deal exaggeration. It transpired that the dog, instead of being killed religiously, was killed simply because he sucked eggs. <laughs> sucked eggs? Sucked eggs, that's what it says. Is that like an expression? Yeah, okay. So. <laughs> I was like, he literally <laughs> That's kind of weird. Okay, the fourth one says, The Corvallis space fillers in the Portland Papers continue to advertise the city as a holy roller town. An ordinance should be passed there muzzling them. So basically the people in Portland were saying, hey, go to Corvallis if you're a holy roller because that's the town for you. Mm-hmm. Kind of like they shipped the homeless down to Salem. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the last one is one of the headlines and it reads, holy rollers roll out. <laughs> they had some great headlines too. So I might refer to a few other ones. So yeah, I had a good time reading some of these headlines. I was like, really? I think you guys had a little bit too much fun with some of this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) The newspapers definitely weren't taking it too seriously. (laughs) So some of the members um, were thought to have lost their sanity, like all of them pretty much. Um, A few were referenced as being pulled from the group and placed in places where they could repair their sanity. Uh, One such member was a 16-year-old girl later named as Esther Mitchell. And she was placed at a boys and girls club. Sorry. She was placed at a boys and girls house to regain her sanity. By November 23rd, 1903, so basically like two weeks of this, O.V. Hurt had had enough and he decided to throw Sheffield, Crefield, and the other leader, Brooks, out of his house. And it, they thought maybe he had finally been convinced by friends and family that he was being taken advantage of. And um, they threatened to tar and feather Crefield and Brooks. So they left town. At one point, a preacher, a holy roller preacher from the movement in Montana was actually tar and feathered by a town. So they they took it pretty seriously. Apparently that was a big thing back then, tarring and feathering. (laughs) So after being kicked out of the hurt home, the rollers rolled on to Anna Beach Place. And I'm not sure if this refers to someone's house or a place that used to exist. I can't find any historical reference to it. So I'm kind of leaning towards it being a residence of Anna Beach. So by March of 1904, B.E. Star filed a complaint against Crefield and a warrant for his arrest was issued. So he was alleging that his wife, Donna Starr, had fallen under the evil power of Crefield and that Crefield had cast an unholy influence over the woman. So, of course, finding out about the warrant, Crefield makes a run for it. First, it's thought that he was in Rainier, Washington. Later, it was found that he moved to Portland, harbored by friends on the outskirts. Then he came back to Corvallis, because, you know, why not go back to the place you were being hunted for? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, police started searching the houses of all his followers, anyone that was likely to conceal him. And he was reportedly seen in Lincoln City near Walport at one point. So eventually, B.E. Star put up a, a reward for $150, which is equal to about $4,800 today. 
So it was during this time that a lot of the followers went crazy. Although I think it's more likely that the police and public saw these people as the most likely to hide Creffield. So they deemed them crazy to get them off the streets and confine them yeah. and get them out of the way. Mm-hmm. So we had Urena Florence Seeley, who sent her sister to the, to the asylum. Frank and Molly Hurt, who were Obi Hurt's son and daughter-in-law, were sent to the asylum. Obi was one of the ones that was instrumental in putting them away. We'll hear about him a lot more in the story. He's very anti-Holy Rollers once he leaves them. That makes sense. They burned all of his stuff. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> and his dog. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Maud Hurt Creffield, who was Creffield's wife and Obi's daughter, was eventually sent to the asylum, as was Sophia Hartley. And lastly, Ovi's wife was sent to the asylum. So basically, he sent his entire family to the asylum. Mm-hmm. Which asylum was this? Um, it did not say what asylum. It just said they were sent to the asylum. Um, Ovi, at this point, was threatening to kill Creffield on site for the damage that he had done to his family. And the most hilarious headline through all this was, Holy Rollers still rolling into the asylum. I was like, you guys get like a 10 out of 10 for that one. I love that one. Like I said, the headlines kept me going. (laughs) So finally in August, or actually it was kind of like July 29th of 1904, Creffield was found and arrested. He was found by Roy Hurt, Hurt family again, who was the young son of O.V. Hurt. So not all of his family went to the asylum, kept a few of them. Um, and he was actually under Ovi Hurt's house. Did Ovi Hurt know about it? I don't know. It doesn't say if he knew about it or not, but I mean, what, that insult to injury, I made your family go insane, and I'm going to hide under your house. Yeah. It's like when I was living here, I <clears throat> dug out a special little dig out for this exact purpose. Right? <laughs> so it was found that the other Roller members have been providing him food, but as they were systematically put in the asylum, his food supply was cut short. <laughs> So when he was found, he was naked and emaciated, which, you know what emaciated means, right? No. Basically, he was like, he had no meat on his bones. He was Mm. malnourished Mm -hmm. because people can't feed him from the insane asylum. Uh, By this time, the the reward for Creffield's capture was up to $300. Doesn't sound like much now, but it was quite a bit back then. The sheriff and the police, which I think is odd, received $200 of the reward. And the last $100 was supposed to go to Roy, but Ovi Hurt refused to allow his son to accept the reward, and it was returned to the county. So him not accepting it equals, today, him refusing $3,200. I would have taken it. Yeah, why did he refuse that? (laughs) I don't know. I think maybe he thought it was his, like, his duty to take care of this guy, because he was so against him. Mm -hmm. Snack break? (laughs) You like that sound, huh? <laughs> We're going to start a segment called What is Validating? <laughs> if you can guess, you get a high five from the person sitting next to you. <laughs> so, Creffield was held with a $2,000 bail, which is about $6,500 today. Mm-hmm. He was charged with adultery with Donna Starr. He pled not guilty to the charges and refused a lawyer. And shockingly chose to represent himself like every other narcissist in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, he's quoted as just saying, the Lord will defend me. 
He was subsequent, subsequently convicted on September 16, 1904, and received a two-year sentence at the Salem Penitentiary. Sentence so, for what? For adultery. That's something they could convince back then? Yep. Yep. With one woman or a bunch of women? Uh, this was only against one woman. Char- the charges were brought. He, there were probably more. Uh, from what I've heard. <laughs> what I've read. Um, so, there were some pretty good quotes from him. Like I said, the papers were full of good quotes, good headlines for this. Um, one of his quotes was, God called me to do all that I have done, and I obeyed him. So, basically, it's God's fault. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, in the eyes of the world, I am guilty, but God is on my side. I beg to differ. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is my favorite. He compares himself to Christ. (laughs) When Christ came on the earth, first thing he did was break the Sabbath, and the Jews crucified him. I have broken the laws of the land, but I don't seem to understand any better than the Jews understood Christ. If I were a court in a case of this kind, I would act just as you are about to act. I would convict. I don't expect to be freed. I know the prison cell is staring me in the face, but I am not ashamed of God's command and I will do what he told me to do. This is why I did not want a lawyer. (laughs) Basically saying, you're sending me to prison, but God told you to send me to prison, so it's still my doing. I'm still in control. Mm -hmm. Sounds like that. Mm -hmm. So once he was imprisoned, his followers slowly began to be released from the asylum. Um, in November, Frank and Molly and Maud were released, and they were all declared sane. In May, Maud actually filed for divorce from Crefield. And after that, they kind of went silent for a while. That is until March 9th, 1906, when Crefield was released from prison after serving 18 months of his two-year sentence. So he got off six months early for good behavior. Uh, during this time, he bounced from place to place. He was seen in, again in Rainier, Washington, and then different areas of California, and then Seattle. In April of 1906, while traveling with Frank Hurt, he joined back up with Frank, he convinced Maud to travel to Seattle and remarry him. In May, plans were made for the Holy Rollers to move into the woods and camp out in nature. See, it's your kind of cult. <laughs> this does not sound like my <laughs> The only thing you mentioned was the woods. <laughs> They're going to camp out in nature. Uh-huh. Like any cold. <laughs> the site that they picked for this was 20 miles from Newport. And many of his followers that were insane and left him joined back up, including Donna Starr, who he was convicted of having adultery with. <laughs> in April 27th, 1906, Crefield and his wife, Frank Hurt and his wife, made a trip to Corvallis. They were followed by Mr. Lewis Hartley. If you recall, his wife was sent to the asylum. I think it was Sophia Hartley. Um, This is another man who accused Crefield of stealing his wife and daughter away from him. He attempted to have Crefield arrested again, but couldn't prove with definite evidence that something had happened. So he went with option number two. He bought a pistol and sought out Crefield. He found Crefield, fired the gun at him five times, but the bullets failed to explode. This was because he bought a a pistol that was a center fire pistol. And I had to ask my boyfriend about this because I didn't know what this meant. 
So apparently it means that when the firing pin hits the bullet, it hits it in the center of the bullet. Mm-hmm. So the primer is going to be in the center of the bullet on a center fire bullet. But he bought a center fire pistol and put rim fire bullets in it, which means it needs a rim fire gun, which where the firing pin hits the outside rim of the bullet where the primer is. Mm-hmm. So his, it wasn't hitting it and causing it to explode. So Wrong bullets for the gun. Yeah, he, he obviously didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> so after this failed attempt, three days later, Lewis went again and purchased another firearm. This time he got a rifle. He sought out Creffield with the intention of shooting him again. And shortly after this, Creffield was run out of town under the threat of being treated roughly should he choose to stay. So he never found him. We're going to fast forward now to May 7th, which is about a month later. After returning to Seattle, Creffield was ambushed outside of a shop by George Mitchell. He was lying in wait for the religious leader. George called out his name causing Creffield to turn and face him, then unceremoniously shot Creffield in the head. Mitchell calmly sat down, waited for police, and submitted to arrest. So, he did his business. He sent a telegram to O.V. Hurt, simply stating, I got my man, I'm here in jail, Signed George. <laughs> so he didn't try and run or anything? No, he just, he shot him and then sat down and waited for the cops to come. Yeah. I think not only are the religious people insane, he drove other people insane. Yeah. Crefield's wife witnessed the whole event. She cradled her husband in her arms, but um, only for a short time. She kind of regained her composure, it's said, and then said, he can't die. He can never die. He did no harm to George Mitchell. So in his teachings, Crefield had told her that he couldn't die. I think he was wrong. Mitchell stated his reasons for killing Creffield was because, quote, I believed it was the right thing to do. I shall take the consequences, whatever they may be. End quote. He believed that Creffield had influenced his sister and had other women under under a spell forcing them to live a shameful life led by the Holy Rollers. So trying to fix his family. Yeah. By killing someone. Yeah. Although some of the headlines, like one of them was religious leader gets his just desserts and I really didn't disagree with it. <laughs> it's horrible but I, I, I really I, yeah. <laughs> I don't have much sympathy for cult leaders. I hate cults. I really do. I think they're the stupidest thing ever and I know people get convinced to go in them and mm-hmm. I know it's super easy but I just ugh. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, several men actually had plans to kill Creffield, but George got to him first. <laughs> he was the one with the position and the opportunity. There was actually no organized organization created, you know, like, we're going to kill him, was it their plan? It was just kind of a mutual understanding among all these men in Corvallis that one of us is going to kill this man. Mm-hmm. Um, Burgess E. Starr had nothing but smiles after hearing that his brother-in-law had killed the man. O.V. Hurt was said to be joyful at the news. <laughs> like, all these guys had parties. <laughs> oh, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. What he was doing was not accepted at the time either. No, it totally so. wasn't. I, yeah. <laughs> kind of well, makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nowadays a man takes the wife's uh, 
you know, a wife away from the husband. They just get a divorce and move on most yeah. of the time. <laughs> Sometimes it ends in murder, but most of the time it's just kind of like, okay, we're moving on. <laughs> uh, while waiting for George to be brought to trial, Maud Hurt Crefield stood watch over his grave. She was absolutely convinced that he would rise from the grave based on his preachings. Um, in Oregon, his followers also were awaiting his rising near uh, Hasita Head. Have you been there? Mm-mm. It is down near Florence, I believe. Um, a timber man named George Hodges, different George, stumbled across some of the followers that Crefield had left in the woods when he returned to Seattle. They were all women and children. One was thought to be the wife of Frank Hurt. They were living off crabs and mussels that they found on the beach. So they were emaciated, worn, and haggard. So there's no men in the fold at this point? Uh, Frank. (laughs) Yeah, he's like the only guy I keep hearing about. I don't hear about any other guys. Um, After they were told that Crefield was dead, they still refused to leave because they believed he would come back and rise from the dead. And they didn't want to disobey his orders. That's how much they feared this dude. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Hodges gave them biscuits and condensed milk, and it was about two days later that the women gave up hope of his resurrection, disbanded, and returned home to Corvallis. So at least they came to their senses eventually. Yeah. <laughs> and this was in that one little town that was like 20 miles from Newport or whatever? Um, this was a little further away. This was, yes, Cedar Head is down by Florence, so it's past Lincoln oh. City and all that, so it's way further down. Yeah, it's way further down. So they must have traveled further. Mm -hmm. I I think it is. Maybe I'm wrong. If you go straight to the beach from Corvallis, it's Newport. And then a couple hours down, more is Florence. Yeah. So returning to Washington on May 24th, George Michael is brought before the judge in the Seattle courtroom where he pleads not guilty to murder in the first degree. I don't know how you can get away with that because, you know, you mentioned that you walk right up and shot the dude. And then waited for the police to arrest yeah. him for it. <laughs> uh, papers were reporting, actually, that even though most men with these charges and evidence against them would likely hang, they didn't think that this would be the case for George because of all the public support he was receiving. Um, a month later, on June 25th, the trial began with jury selection, which was super difficult because of all the sensationalism surrounding this case. Mm-hmm. Um, the defense pled temporary insanity and said that George was driven to his actions by Crefield's actions against his sisters. O.V. Hurt testified in defense of George and was allowed to tell the entire story of the happenings at his house, Crefield leading his wife and daughter astray, and essentially breaking up his family. Starr also testified about Esther Mitchell's slow descent into, rel- into the religious movement that led her family to place her in the boys' and girls' home in Portland. He claimed, quote, Crefield demanded they should eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, end quote. Things like this made the family anxious to recover Esther. Make me a little anxious to recover my sister, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with this guy. He wants me to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. It's so romantic. <laughs> no, it's not. Get out of there. (laughs) (laughs) We're picking you up right now. (laughs) Yeah. So when it came to the insanity charges, the prosecution fought against having an insanity expert brought in. 
I'm guessing that's a psychologist, but yeah. to refer to him as an insanity expert makes it seem like someone who is insane and has experience with it. <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> to does. me at least. <laughs> Um, the judge actually allowed it, and he also allowed the family's mental history to be brought in as evidence. Um, the expert, quotations, is uh, said to have said, uh, quote, I would say such a man as possessed of a delusion, he was insane. End quote. Mm. He also referenced that because George insisted that God commanded him to kill Crefield, demonstrates that his mind was not functioning as a mind should. <clears throat> so in July, trial ended. The jury took an hour and 25 minutes to deliberate and came to the decision and found George Michael not guilty and acquitted him of all charges. It was reported that there were loud applauses and hysterical <laughs> weeping of joy throughout the courtroom. <laughs> but unfortunately, that joy would not last. Why is that? Thursday, July 12th, just one day after being acquitted, George entered Union Depot in Seattle to leave for his home in Portland. He would not finish that journey. Esther Mitchell would recall the events that day to papers later on. Um, this is a direct quote from Esther. Uh, my brother Fred was up in my room today and said that Perry and George were going to Portland this evening. I went to the depot and saw Perry get his ticket. At last, I saw George and shook his hand. He and Perry were walking in front of me, and Fred and I were walking behind. I was walking to the door, and George was in front of me. That was the chance I wanted, and I shot him. My brother Fred grabbed me, and I sat down in his lap and put my arms around his neck. I sat there, and the officer came. I intended to follow him to Portland if I did not get a chance at him here. I'm not sorry I did the shooting. I'm glad of it. End quote. The shot killed George instantly. And through her statements, Esther indicated a plot by Miss Crefield and the other Holy Rollers resulting in many of them being arrested throughout Seattle. When questioned, Miss Crefield indicated that from the moment George killed her husband, she had every intention of getting even, but didn't think she'd have the opportunity or chance to do it. Luckily, Esther volunteered kill her own brother. <laughs> Both women were charged with murder. They were immediate they immediately expressed the desire to be tried separately and both pled not guilty. At this point, Esther seemed resigned to her fate and willing to take her consequences. At the postmortem of George Mitchell, it was announced that his brain showed no signs of the insanity he built his defense on. In fact, his brain looked perfectly normal. Do but, brains look different? Is there... You know, back then I think they thought that, that there was like some abnormality, but really I don't think there is. I mean... Not that you can see with your eyes. Yeah, it's like on an MRI and stuff they can see it, but yeah, not naked eyes. they didn't have those then. I think they expected it to be like purple with polka dots or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or like all deteriorated or something. I, I just thought that was interesting that they put that, they, they had a whole article on how his brain was completely normal and he wasn't actually insane, and I'm like... Could have still been insane. Yeah, that's what that means. <laughs> Sounds like he wasn't all there. I mean, he was, but he wasn't. He made bad choices. Mm -hmm. And they might have done like shock treatments that affected the brain of insane people in the asylums, 
So they might have thought that insane people had their brains altered because of what they were doing to their brains in the asylums. Well, he never went to the asylum. This yeah, George, so his so. brains looks normal. <laughs> oh, oh, I see what you're saying. When they did postmortems on people from the asylum that were crazy, ah, they were, yeah, that could be. Yeah. Um, after the spectacle of George Mitchell's trial, Washington began considering sending the woman back to Oregon to be dealt with. Because this is possible due to a law that declared if someone is accused of murder and declared insane, they can be sent to their home state for them to handle. Esther at first refused any help, especially from her brothers, but did eventually accept a lawyer retained by O.V. Hurt for her and Maud Hurt Greffield. The attorneys for both women moved to have them declared insane, saying that they had been for years. I mean, they both went to an asylum, so it's not a very hard point to prove. Mm -hmm. Both women insisted that they were perfectly sane and they would rather hang than be declared insane, as what they had done was the right thing to do. So the trial began in July. Um, It was totally different from the spectacle of George's. Um, Instead of packed courtrooms and hard-to-find juries, the women found themselves in an almost empty courtroom with society and the media showing little interest in their case. Which I find shocking. This is like, I'm like, this is like crazy to me that nobody was like, this lady killed her brother after her brother killed this guy. Yeah. We should follow this. We're so interested in her brother, but not her brother's murderer. I'm guessing it's because she was a woman Mm -hmm. at this time. And women don't kill people. And the fact that they kill people, they're like, oh, let's push this under the rug. We don't want to talk about this. Mm -hmm. Women can't do things like that. Um, Judge Frater appointed a commission to decide if Esther and Maude were insane. The judge indicated he preferred this to presiding over the women's murder trial. That's what makes me think they want to push it under the rug. He doesn't even want to preside over a trial of women murderers. Because it'll put a smudge on his name. (laughs) (laughs) So by September, Judge Frater declared both insane and ordered them sent to Oregon. But there was a problem with this because once they would reach Oregon and once they were deemed in, deemed sane in Oregon, so if they recovered, they would be absolutely free. Even though they murdered someone? Yeah. So if they were sent back to Oregon and then later on declared sane, they could be free to move about their business. If they stayed in Washington, once they were deemed sane, they could be prosecuted. So in October, arguments against their deportation began. Before this was decided, though, tragedy struck yet again. I told you this is like craziness. Mm-hmm. One thing after the other. I know. <laughs> it's never ending. <laughs> On Friday, November 16th, around midnight, Maude Hurt-Creffield suddenly died in her cell. Prior to autopsy, it was thought that heart disease contributed to her death. It was then during the, the autopsy... It was discovered that strychnine was in her stomach, and her death was ruled a suicide. It was assumed she took the poison to end her life, and um, after that, a close eye was kept on Esther, so that the same fate did not befall her. Where did she get that while she was locked up, though? It sounds like they let the women have a lot more leeway than the men. Mm-hmm. They they kind of got to go, because like, they had them cooking and sewing and... Doing things like that, uh, they'd help out nurse people. <laughs> Let's let them around the poison. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Or, or, you know, I think that's in Rat Killer, too. So, I mean, even in the kitchen, she probably could have found it. Yeah. Um, and it's thought that Esther actually helped her with this, too. But they just couldn't prove it. Esther, on the other hand, uh, swore up and down that her friend would never kill herself. But, yeah. <clears throat> in January of 1907, it was decided that Esther would remain in Washington, and if her sanity was ever re- restored, she would stand trial for murder. She was taken to Stella Coom Asylum, where she remained until April of 1909. So they told me the asylum in this one. I don't know where that is, mm-hmm. but they told me where what, what it was. So in 1909, Dr. Calhoun ordered Esther's release and gave her into the care of O.V. Hurt. This guy is like all over the story. I don't know why he gave her to him, but because he wasn't her dad. Who was he? He was he was the dad of of uh, Crefield's wife, Maud, the one that committed suicide. So it's 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 kind of it, it quirks me wrong that he he's the one caring for her and helping her out and her own family is not. I don't know if maybe that's because she doesn't want them to, but yeah. Doctor Calhoun declared the girl was entirely sane now, which is weird because they didn't actually try her for murder again. They just kind of deemed her sane and said, "Go away." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to talk about this anymore. Did she uh, give the? Statement to the newspaper after her trial? Uh, before her trial. But then she pled not guilty. Yeah. <laughs> and then she was deemed insane. Became sane, what, two years later? And was told to go away, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is how they treated women. <laughs> so, um, in August 1909, so this is what, four months after her release... It was reported that Esther had been found in a Chinese opium den in Vancouver. She was emaciated and high on opioids. But then a week after this report, it was found out that that was false. (laughs) There were like 10 reports on this. Like, oh my gosh, this lady is like crazy now. Um, Another young woman actually used her name instead of her own. Mm-hmm. And um, O.V. Hurt confirmed that Esther had been in Walport, Oregon since her release in April. It was not her. It was some other lady. And they actually said it was a an Asian lady. So I'm like, <laughs> how did you even... She, she wasn't... She, far as I know from the pictures, she looks like a white girl. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's not much more about her other than in 1914, she actually got married to a man named James Barry. Um, but again, that happiness wouldn't last because a few short months later on August 2nd, 1914, Esther Mitchell Barry committed suicide by taking strychnine like her good friend Maud. And so ended the saga of the Holy Rollers. See what I mean by like, yeah. up, down, up, down, up, down. <laughs> It's like, I, I didn't know about the last two deaths. I only knew about the first two. And then as I'm reading this, I'm like, oh, oh, oh. There's more. <laughs> I got to the last one and I was like, oh, that's how it ends? Ooh. But yeah, it just, you know, she never was charged. I don't think anybody was really interested in charging her. It sounded like her brothers supported her. Her family supported her. So, but, um, 
Yeah, that's the saga of our Oregon cult, the Holy Rollers. <laughs> that we never knew we had or never knew we needed. <laughs> I don't think we need to bring that back, guys. <laughs> well, at first I thought, oh, Holy Rollers, it's a cult on roller skates. This will be yeah. way cool. <laughs> that's what I thought, too. That's what it sounds like. And then I got it, I'm like, well, there's no roller skates, but it is interesting. <laughs> And it's something I've never heard living here. I mean, this, this took place for, like, this was only a, what, it, the, the cult started in 1903, and Esther killed herself in 1914. This was an 11-year period. Mm-hmm. It's just crazy. I feel like that could be, like, a church roller skating team name. Right? We need to start <laughs> one of those. Can I call it that? Uh, yeah, a church roller derby team. <laughs> And as they elbow the lady next to them, they say, bless you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. All right. Should we roll on out of here? (laughs) I love it. That is so how we're ending this. (laughs) She's got me rolling on the floor. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Oh, there's just too many. Like, seriously, I'm reading these headlines and I'm cracking up. We're, we're on a roll. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> should not be laughing about this. This is a bad thing. Cults are bad. Don't join cults. But if you do, give it an interesting name. Yes, please, so we can make fun of you later. Yes. <laughs> That's all I ask. Let me make fun of you. (laughs) Well, that's it for this week. Do we have anything uh, coming up next week? I am working on the next week's. I haven't read any of the stuff yet. I'm still collecting it all. But it is a family event. Okay. Event. It's, yeah, I don't know how else to describe it. It's, it's super depressing. Oh. Um, <laughs> Another one of those. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not as depressing as the last one because there is an ending. Okay. But, it yeah, let's describe it as a family event. A famous prison breaker is in this. For Oregon, at least. But although I've never heard of I Well, I've heard of her, but I didn't know who she was. Did I give away too much? No. Okay. I have no idea what you're talking about. So <laughs> Generally, she knows has no idea what I'm talking about, so it's okay. True. <laughs> so until next time, just keep rolling. <laughs> just keep rolling. Just keep rolling. <laughs> <laughs>